0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. So I know there's a lot of buzz and interest around agroforestry and food forest these days, but do you really know what the difference is between an orchard and a food forest? Or how to choose the right species for your climate and soil conditions? How about companion plants in the various strata of a forest? And if you're looking to make money and sell products, How can you make a business plan and calculate expenses and profit from a system that could take years to mature? Luckily my friend Jacob Evans and I will be covering all of that and more in our upcoming course on Profitable Centropic Agroforestry. In the beautiful setting of the Spanish coastal mountains, Jacob and I will take you through the practical learning experience of designing and planning all the way to putting plants in the ground for a profitable centropic agroforestry enterprise. Early registration discounts are now open for this five-day course from April 13th through the 18th, and because of COVID precautions, spots are limited, so be sure to register right away. Just follow the link on the website or our link tree on Instagram for all of the details. Now if, on the other hand, you already know what you want to plant and have a design ready to go, I can help you out there too. If your project is located anywhere in continental Europe, you can get the trees you're thinking of planting and a group of volunteers to help you out to get them in the ground absolutely free. I've connected with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing 500 million trees all over Europe in the next couple of years. It's an ambitious goal and we need your help. Whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleyways or hedges to your farm, or simply inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help make your project happen with free trees and planting support. So if you sign up through the link on the website, I'll also offer a free project consultation to make sure that you get started with a good plan and understand how the process works. Just fill out the information through the link and let's get planting. Hey, and welcome back everybody. Now as we continue this ongoing series on building strong communities, I wanted to take a step back and focus on the youngest members whose needs and considerations are often overlooked as adults take charge and make decisions. Now of course, childhood education, especially nature reconnection and environmental knowledge has come to the forefront of my thinking this year, especially since my sister and her three little girls came to visit from where they live in Kuwait for the whole month of January. So going into this visit, I was really excited to spend some time with them after a two-year absence during the pandemic, and I started planning all kinds of activities for what we were calling Jungle School. Now, Jungle School was thought up as the time that I was going to set aside in the mornings to bring the girls outside and discover all the wonders of nature and the different forms of plant, animal, and fungal life that we have in this environment around me. The setting was perfect. Thanks to a connection that my partner has, we were able to put them up in a Catalan Masia set in an organic hazelnut orchard where there's outdoor play areas and fruit trees and chickens and rabbits and even horse stables. I figured I got this. I mean, I used to work as a camp counselor at summer camps and at guest ranch, and one of my first jobs was before and after school programs at an elementary school. I love working with kids, and in the Zoom calls that I had before they came out, I got them all worked up about the upcoming adventures of Jungle School. You're probably thinking by now, Oliver, you're hyping this up a lot, and it sounds like you're going to be setting us up for a big letdown. And that's not actually not the case. All in all, things went incredibly well. The girls loved going out to feed our food scraps from the kitchen to the pig and pick leaves to feed to the rabbits. And the oldest girl, Selma, who's six, ran around the orchards with me playing Harry Potter and hunting Voldemort. (laughs) At the same time, though, if I am being honest, a lot of the activities that I had planned and set up for outdoor activities were not a huge hit. The thing is, I could tell pretty quickly that some of them were really fun for a six-year-old, while Rowan, at three years old, lost interest pretty fast, or vice versa. Now, Rowan could play constantly in a sandpit forever while Selma got bored and then a little cranky. <laughs> now, all of this is to say that I got a renewed respect for the insight that it takes to plan nature activities for kids and the thoughtfulness that's required to guide them through environmental learning in a way that connects with young digital natives. Luckily for me and all the rest of us, there are some amazing resources out there that can help us out. And so I reached out to Jacob Roddenberg, the co-author and the author respectively of The Big Book of Nature Activities and The Book of Nature Connection. Both of these titles focus on unique ways that Jacob has learned to engage children and adolescents with the wonders and science of nature. Jacob is the executive director at Camp Kawartha an award-winning summer camp and outdoor education center, which uses music, drama, hands-on exploration, games and activities, and more, to inspire awe and wonder for the local environment. He teaches part-time at Trent University, where he spearheaded the development of an eco-mentor certificate program for teacher candidates, which was subsequently adopted by several other universities. As well as publishing numerous articles on children, nature, and the environment, Jacob has worked in the field of outdoor education for 25 years and recently received the Ontario Society of Environmental Educators Award for Leadership in Environmental Education. Now, in this interview, Jacob and I unpack the myriad reasons why it's so important for children to learn to connect with nature at an early age and the potential consequences of nature deficit disorder if they don't. We start by exploring ways to get kids outside in the digital age, and to inspire them to connect with the outdoors through their own unique motivations. From there, we go into activities for kids at different ages and development stages, different sensory activities that help to connect beyond just seeing, and fun activities for different seasons during the year. Jacob also shares with me some of his own learnings and observations from decades of working in environmental education for kids, and his personal favorite games and projects to encourage young people to develop their own love for the natural world. I had so much fun with this interview and I came away with a ton of great ideas for when my nieces come to visit me next time. And also know that for those of you who are interested in checking out the two books that Jacob wrote, my friends at New Society Publishers have offered to give away free books to subscribers to this podcast. And if you hang out until the end of the episode, I'll let you know how you can win your very own copy. So with that all out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Jacob Brodenberg. First of all, how did you get started with working with younger people, children and adolescents, and teaching them and guiding them through reconnection, through activities in nature?
1: That's a very good question. I think I can credit my parents in growing up as a wild child, which meant in those days I was kicked outside and left to romp and explore And what a wonderful gift that was. I think for my parents, it was more just to get us out from under their feet. But for me, it meant being able to go and explore wetlands, climb trees, build forts, just being out every day in this beautiful natural area that I happen to be lucky to live next to. And so over the years, I think that helped to build a strong relationship between myself and nature and wanting to share that joy with other people.
0: How do you feel like that turned into a career path? Because I myself worked in uh, after school programs and summer camps, some of which had more of a nature focused experience and others were more kind of like gym based activities or what you would think of as gym classes from, from elementary school. What made you go into the nature advocacy and education reconnection experience route?
1: Yeah, interesting. I think it, I can credit to a program called Tumovic. So when I was 17 and the end of high school, I applied to this wonderful program and I got accepted. And then I thought about it and said, dad, you know what? I want to go to university. And he said, kid, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You should go. And I said, "Uh, no, I want to go to university. But luckily for me, my father has a strong personality. He said, you go. So with tears in my eyes, he put me on the train and up I went to rural Quebec and in Katimabic. The idea is you provide community service in several communities across Canada. You live with some French Canadians, you live with people from more privileged, less privileged backgrounds, and you learn to work together. So I think from that, just engaging in different activities with youth, I began to value teaching and value what youth could do and thought that later on, maybe that's something I could pursue. It's funny because I think I would have studied English (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a really unique story. Usually it's parents that are pushing you towards higher education first and kids no. advocating for the other side. Uh, that's yeah. amazing that you had that experience when you did.
1: And then it backfired because when I came back, I didn't want to go to university. And I think my dad was a bit frustrated at that. And I went on to become a group leader for Katimavik for a few years. One year in Red Lake in Northern Ontario, another year in Yellowknife. And those are just wonderful experiences.
0: Oh, man, I've only seen pictures from up in that area. It looks really beautiful. What were some of the formative experiences that you had there that you later brought into your work?
1: Uh, we went winter camping um, up in Thunder Bay. And how cool was that when it was minus 30, minus 40? In, in those days, Katimovic had an affiliation with the military, so we were able to borrow military winter camping equipment for free. And uh we survived a few nights, we built a Quincy, we made fires, we made tea. It was just a beautiful experience. And then, you know, being in touch with nature, even when it wasn't the most friendliest, when the temperature was that cold, I don't know, it was lovely.
0: This is becoming a more and more rare experience, especially for the younger generation. And Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you refer to as nature deficit disorder and the effect that it's having on children these days.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful phrase that was coined by Richard Louvre. And he doesn't mean it in a medical sense. But what he does say is that kids need nature as part of a healthy childhood. And if you withdraw experiences in the natural world from children, then they begin to view the natural world as an alien landscape, they become scared of it. And then they spend most of their time indoors and it's kind of ironic isn't it that we try to teach kids about the rest of the world from the confines of four walls we don't think about this there is this thing called outdoor education but you know conversely there's this thing called indoor education and that's what we engage in and how how sad it is that there's a beautiful world a few steps right outside the door that our kids aren't exploring and when they're spending so much time the average is about eight hours a day in front of a glowing screen, what are they not doing? They're they're not experiencing what I call their neighborhood, their natural community. You know, in truth, we live in a place that is buildings, houses, and people, but it also is the living systems that nourish us. And if we don't come into regular contact with that, then we're missing a big piece of life. And how are we gonna care for something if we don't even know what it is, if we don't experience if it's not part of our milieu? So what I would love to do is to teach kids um, that the natural world is part of their community. And it's so full of wonderful stories from the little chickadee that at this time of year is calling out madly for its mate. <laughs> speeding, to the squirrels and the chipmunks that are busy trying to find mates as well. There's an explosion of life that happens in spring. And, you know, just to share that joy. It's so important.
0: Yeah, it's strange how this is no longer normal when it has been throughout all of human history. What were some of the contributing factors that have made it uh, a common thing to educate children indoors and the concept of outdoor education and nature connection to be an extracurricular almost as an optional thing that is not as necessary as it clearly is?
1: Yeah, I think it, a lot of it has to do with liability concerns that principals are worried that it's dangerous out there, that children are going to get abducted or they're going to get bitten. Um, and sadly, you know, we think about risk tolerance. We, most of us, hop into a car every day. There's probably a one in 80 chance that we'll get into an accident sometime in our lives or. You know, stairs, Uh, every 10 minutes, someone falls downstairs and hurts themselves in North America. And yet we tolerate that. But when it comes to going outside, the chances of actually something happening are very slim. But the opportunities there are so wonderful from, you know, playing, just using natural materials, for example, a stick. The organic forms of nature invite creativity and creative thought. You know, that stick becomes a magic wand or the mass of a ship or it could become a sword or it could become the pillar of a castle. Um, and allowing kids to play in nature activates their imagination and creativity in a way plastic toys could never do. And when you're playing together in nature, then uh, what happens? Well, you learn to cooperate, learn to problem solve, um, you just learn to imagine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like The first step, of course, is getting kids outside. And it seems like the easiest thing in the world, depending on who your kids are. I know it was not a challenge for my parents, even growing up in Minnesota with like six months of winter, we were rushing to get outside all the time. But with digital stimuli, the screens, the video games, and all of the other toys now that are, I don't know, it it seems like they're designed to suck all of our attention. And it's hard for the more simplistic things out in nature to compete with such constant information and sensory overload. What are some of the steps that you've taken to help kids to get outside as something that isn't looked at as a chore or sometimes a punishment, like go outside, you're being too rambunctious?
1: Yeah. One of the things I've been loving to do lately is practicing sensory awareness activities. Because if you think about it, you're hunched over a computer screen everything's squeezed into two dimensions hermetically sealed you're only activating your sense of sight and your sense of hearing but those other senses are are missing in fact some people have called it sensory anesthesia where you but our senses are designed to connect us fulsomely to the natural world and i believe that if kids aren't activating their senses if they're not in nature they're missing a piece, a feeling of belonging to something bigger. And maybe that's contributing to a sense of loneliness they have because they don't feel like they're part of the life systems that nourish us all. So some of the sensory activities I might do is we might go and do a little scratch and sniff. We're rubbing the surfaces of moth. We're smelling a handful of earth. We're rubbing the different evergreen needles from pine to fir to spruce. And just picking up those different aromas, we might create a little smell cocktail where we take a little smidgen of earth, a few snippets of uh, pine needles and fir needles, a bit of grass, and we create these little smell cocktails and we share and we give it a name. Or we might take an empty frame, you know, and even just if you flip one hand up, flip the other hand the other way, you're isolating a piece of nature and you're looking at it in a unique perspective. But an empty frame, like an empty cardboard frame, you can take some clothespins and hang it up somewhere and get a beautiful view of nature. Or you might just take your two hands, cut them together, put them behind your ears and, and really listen. I mean, some people are so good that they can recognize the sounds of different trees as the wind tosses their branches just by the, the sound alone, like the whooshing of a white pine or the chattering of an aspen. You know. Uh, other things I love doing is just exploring. I, I remember once taking my kids to this beautiful overlook. We hiked, oh, it must have been an hour to get to the top. I was sweating. And I was taking it all in, you know, lakes sparkling in the distance. I could see uh, the tops of trees. And my kids were hunched down looking at ants. And that's because, especially kids, smaller kids have a contracted view of the environment. But if you can harness that, create little micro trails. So you take um, a popsicle stick and you you poke it down in something that's interesting. So it might be next to a chewed leaf. And you have a little bit of yarn and you wrap it around the popsicle stick and you go to the next spot, which might be a small hole right next to a tree. And you go to the next spot, which might be this interesting rock. and you create a small micro trail and go follow it with a magnifying glass, just paying attention to the very small. Or basement windows, which is uh, you lift up a rock and you peer underneath. And I'll say to the kids, hey, do you want to see um, a baby dragon or maybe a shapeshifter? Or maybe you want to see an earth boring submarine. And of course, what those are the earth boring submarine is an earthworm. The shapeshifter is a little pill bug that curls up into a ball, and the baby dragon is a salamander. But these are ways just to help kids wander. And really be amazed at all the stories that are there in the natural world.
0: If I heard you correctly, most of the examples that you gave were for younger children. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the ways that adolescents and teenagers can start to engage their senses in all of the different interactions that can happen in the natural world?
1: Yeah, one of the things I love doing with older kids is just even traditional skills or survival skills, making a bow drill fire, making a fort, Um, Just even, I play a game called the Lost Game, where we're in an open field, I blindfold someone and ask them to walk into a straight line to a pylon that might be 50 meters away, but invariably they begin to curl off because one leg is stronger than the other, or the landscape bounces you, and I use that as a way to say, well, when you're in the wilderness and you're thinking you're walking in a straight line, the landscape will bounce you all over and you'll get lost and disoriented, so I show them simple ways of keeping a straight line. You know, that's you look at one spot in the distance where you are, you turn your head you find another, make sure they're in a straight line and then you go to that next spot and that way you won't be curling. Um, But yeah, and the other thing we love doing is just vigorous physical activity, going for a vigorous hike, um, canoeing. And then as kids get older yet, you know, I know Children today are really concerned about the state of the environment. And there is a word called ecophobia, which means those problems from climate change to species depletion to pollution to overpopulation, they're quite overwhelming. And as a kid, you're saying, what the heck am I supposed to do with that? You know, and you almost get scared into apathy. But by showing that just planting a little garden right next to where you are, small, local steps that help to activate and empower youth, that's so important, and everybody can do something, and the act of doing something is in itself empowering.
0: Wow, I couldn't agree more. Now, let's dive even deeper into this level of activities and engagement for children of different development levels. So, Mm -hmm. you know, at different ages, children connect with nature in different ways, at different growth and development stages. How can you use this knowledge to help select activities that each age group will really engage with?
1: Interesting. So one of the things that um, the organization I work for, Camp Coorth, has done is we created something called the pathway to stewardship and kinship. So people want to look that up. And what we've done is we have funding to figure out, well, what are the key seminal experiences every child needs from the time they're born to the time they graduate from high school to be an engaged steward and we define stewardship as someone who cares for each other and cares for the land. So little kids really it is focusing on sensory awareness but as kids get older um, it's almost like ever widening fields of self. When you're younger you're focused more on your own needs but as you get older you recognize you're part of the society and then as you get older yet you recognize you're part of a bigger world And it's finding those activities that are age appropriate through each age and stage of a child's development. So yeah, um, middle-aged kids love to explore. So if you're eight, nine, 10, that's a very evocative age and children are curious. And part of the way as as a parent or an educator, you could help to spur that curiosity on is um, something I called homesing the leaf. So you ask every child, to grab a leaf and hold it in their hands and stand next to a partner who also is holding a leaf. And you say, I don't know if you ever heard of Sherlock Holmes, but Watson, who was Sherlock Holmes' sidekick, would always say, Watson, how is it you figured out the answers to those mysteries? And Holmes would say, my dear Watson, you see, but you do not notice. So then in the spirit of Sherlock Holmes, each person looks at their leaf and they Start with the statement, I noticed that. I noticed that this leaf is different colors on both sides. I noticed that this leaf has more pronounced veins on the back. Ooh, I noticed that the leaf has pointy edges or an insect's been chewing it. What do you notice? And the next thing after that is, I wonder. I wonder why this leaf is green. I wonder why it fell off the tree. I wonder what insect ate this leaf and really, If you think of the engine of learning is curiosity. So as a parent, as an educator, if we can harness that curiosity and really help kids to ask those wonder questions. At the very end of this exercise, you can also say, huh, it reminds me of, well, this leaf reminds me of the fact that spring is coming and new leaves will be forming. Um, This leaf reminds me that, well, eventually it'll fall into the soil it'll decompose and help other things to grow. So that sequence from observing to wondering to thinking about relationships really helps kids feel more connected to the natural world
0: around them. I love that because one of the things that I often talk about on this show is the process of observation of nature and learning how to read a landscape. And it can be hard to develop those skills if you don't have much reference or training from doing it when you were younger. And in developing this observational skill, it's almost exercising it like a muscle. Yeah. It trains your eyes to notice things and distinguish different life forms, different stages of development, different interaction patterns. And I can imagine this leads to an overall feeling of more familiarity and less, less foreignness yeah. from the, inner, the, the environment around you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And those wonder questions... And those curiosity questions are so important. And as parents and as educators, we can either shut it down or we can encourage it. And so often I've heard a parent say, oh, Johnny, put that down. That's gross. A spider, yuck. But if you can just bite your tongue and say, that's really interesting. Huh. I wonder what kind of spider that is. Maybe we should go look it up. By showing an interest that you're cultivating that sense of curiosity and legitimizing what that kid is feeling and feeling. Um, the, the more that you can spur that on and encourage it, the better, and the more a child will wonder. And you don't need to know the answers to it; you, you just need to make the effort to find out more. And for every one answer, it opens up a whole myriad of new questions. Absolutely. And, and really, and, and you think about it too. You know, the traditional nature educator was very encyclopedic. You'd walk around and you say, "Oh yeah, oh look at that. That's an elm tree, and over here, yes, that's a." So they'd be labeling. But that's not the way our brains work. Our brains are designed to listen to stories. For thousands upon thousands of years, that's the way knowledge was transmitted. So it's better when we're in nature to take something like a cedar tree and find out what is the story of that cedar tree. Like it grows in alkaline soil. Its wood is rot resistant. It's a great place for animals to live. You you can make a tea because it's rich in vitamin C. So dive more deeply, find out the story, the character of that particular thing. Which brings me to another point too, and that is the tendency of all of us to um, really think of nature as a resource that only exists for human consumption, instead of you know thinking about it as a, a living entity that has a right to exist. And what you can do is animate the landscape. So my wife, Jessica, who runs a Waldorf-based school. um, She's really good at that. So the kids will go out to, let's say, Grandfather Rock or Heart Tree. And by using these names, she begins to give the land personality and imbue it with a bit of spirit. And kids connect more deeply that way. So, and if you go to the same spots over and over again, you're starting to build a relationship with that piece of land. Let's think about the language of relationship, right? When you have a relationship with somebody, it takes intention, mindfulness, hard work, commitment. Those same things can apply to a piece of land too, right? Intimacy of of going over and over again, of practicing reciprocity and gratitude and thanks. We can do that as parents. We can help kids to get really intimately acquainted with a piece of land so they learn to love it. You know, and and by loving it, they'll want to learn more. Really, you know, there's a wonderful quote which says, knowledge without love will not stick. So if if we want kids to protect the environment, love the environment, then they have to be in it and develop a relationship with it. Uh, The First Nations, where I am right now, um, it's the Anishinaabe, Ojibwe. And they have this beautiful word called Anakanath which means all my relations. So their view of nature is that it's part of their family, the sky, the earth, the soil, the plants, the insects, the birds. Wouldn't it be nice if we too could practice relating to nature in that fulsome way?
0: Absolutely. And it seems like one of the progressions of going on that story, that journey with the environment that you live in is seeing its progression through different seasons and its transformations. And I know you've got some wonderful activities for each of the major four seasons. Can you talk about how interaction may change or opportunities might evolve through the transformation over time?
1: Yeah. I'll just say a few of some of my favorite activities for each season of the year. And hopefully it <coughs> me, resonate with your listeners. I love doing mushroom prints in the fall. So that you harvest the cap of a mushroom. You place it on a piece of paper and you put a glass over it. Leave it for 24 hours. And what will happen is the spores will fall off and make this beautiful mushroom print. And that's the way that people who study mushrooms identifying mushrooms. So you can make mushroom prints. Another is in the fall or even in the spring, but fall works, you take a clothespin and you put your name on it. So you just write your name on the top of the clothespin and clip it to a leaf. And then go to that same leaf every day uh, for the next, you know, three, four weeks and just watch how it changes over time. Cause you don't really notice that. But if you focus on one small piece, you can really see how quickly it changes, how it changes color, it shrivels. You could even um, do nature sculpting. All you have to do is search Andy Goldsworthy online. Now he is this beautiful artist that hails from Britain. He goes out into the natural world and only using his hands, he creates these beautiful sculptures. So he might pin leaves together using thorns and drape them and watch as the sunlight sort of sparkles through. He might take different shaped rocks and make really neat patterns. He always takes a picture of it and then he lets nature reclaim it. Um, So if you take a look at his pictures, you'll get inspired to do some nature art. Now I'm always careful about making sure that we practice reciprocity, which means if we're gonna ever be taking something from nature, we, we give more back. So I'll sprinkle wildflowers, seeds, I'll maybe plant a, a tree. The operating principle is you always give more than you take. In the wintertime, you might follow animal tracks. And remember, every animal that walked by in the snow left a story behind. So you can ask, well, what way was the animal going? Often leave a scuff mark at the back of its print. Was it walking? Was it running? Was it eating? What was it doing? Um, what are the shape of its footprints? And if you follow it for a bit, you can almost imagine what that animal was doing. You can catch a snowflake in the winter. All you do is you take a black piece of Bristol board, laminated if you can. If not, just make sure it's cold. And when it's gently snowing outside, maybe minus five, Catch a snowflake and look at it with a magnifying glass and you'll see beautiful stellar dendrites, uh, maybe hexagonal plates, but you'll be amazed at how beautiful these crystalline structures are. If If you want a challenge in the winter, you can take a little yogurt container and fill it with hot water and then try to make a nest and see if you can keep that container warm. Come back in a few hours and see how you did. And then remember, that's how animals survive the winter. In the spring, I love teaching people about pishing. If you're in the woods and you hear a chickadee calling, chickadee, start this sound, pish, pish, pish. birders call it pishing. And it makes chickadees and nuthatches and kinglets really curious and they'll come up close. I've had as many as 60 chickadees almost with an arm splint as, as I'm pishing. Or, You might just listen to the different frogs that are starting to sing in the spring. You've got the bullfrog. You've got the green frog or the toads. You go to frogwatch.ca, you can learn those different songs and go to a wetland, put your ears on those cupped hearing and see if you can figure out what kind of frogs are calling. You can actually report that to Citizen Science. In the summer, you might think about fireflies and calling them in. If you have a little indigo watch, you can mimic the pattern that fireflies make and attract them. Or you can look for insects, pond dipping. Take a net from the dollar store, dip it in the ooze of a pond, and maybe you'll find an underwater jaw-thrusting bug snatcher. baby dragonfly they live in the mud and they have this labium that unfolds to catch their prey there's all kinds of wonderful critters that are hidden from view in a pond that are so worth seeing those are just a few activities and many more in the book but i hope that helps
0: absolutely man my imagination is going wild and not only about other things that I could find around these new environments that I constantly get to see but also with memories from my childhood and how much I would have loved to do you know similar things or I I didn't have many people to actually show me around and teach me a lot of it was just self-education and exploring with my friends although Mm -hmm. there's certainly nothing wrong with that either but you mentioned something that I really want to dive deeper into, and that's that concept of reciprocity, because I think it's so important, not only to see the outdoors as something that we go out to observe, but develop relationships and ways of interacting in order to deepen the connection.
1: Yeah. If ever I have a message that I want to convey, it's, it's this. People are talking about sustainability and sustaining, and that word implies a steady state, but it doesn't suggest that things will get better. It'll only stay the same. If we want things to get better, we have to go beyond sustaining. And the word that I'm loving these days and the word that I would like people to think about is regenerative. The word, it's part of this podcast, right? That means that if you take a corner of your backyard and you plant shrubs and wildflowers and bushes that bear berries and put in butterfly houses, it's amazing how much life you can attract even to a small spot. So you know, it's, in environmental education, we're always talking about mitigating harm. Let's, let's do better than that. Let's, let's do more good. Let's see if we can bring nature back. In a way, we practice nature apartheid, don't we? We create these cities with massive amounts of concrete. We relegate nature to over there. It's time to bring nature back and we can do that. We can infuse nature in our built spaces both inside and outside by creating butterfly gardens, by having native plant species, by even having um, plants inside. But the more that we make nature proximate, and right there, the more we'll love and interact with it and the more we'll value it.
0: And certainly these concepts are not just for kids or adolescents. How can (laughs) adults use these activities for their own reconnection with nature?
1: Yeah, you know, I think we were all born to yearn to connect to nature. And that once we start doing that, practicing sensory awareness, exploring, just going for walks, the more we will feel connected to something bigger than ourselves, the more, more we will feel less alone and more nourished. So every day, get a bit of vitamin N, vitamin nature. A dab will do you, doesn't have to be long, but just sitting in a park and really activating all your senses at once. What does this place smell like? What do I see? What do I hear? Try to get outside of yourself and into the world around you and drink it in through the magic of your senses. I think you'll feel in a way less lonely and more complete.
0: Mm. And what advice do you have for people who are looking to take on an educator or a guidance role in helping others, especially children, to begin to reconnect in this way?
1: Yeah, I think I think it starts with just taking kids outside. It starts with building that intimacy with place, and then thinking about well, you know, here we are. What can we do to make this place richer? What would seven generations say from now about how we're caring for this space? Would they approve of what we're doing? Um, and what would seven generations back say about what we're doing? So, what small acts can we engage in? that will make this space more nature-rich, more beautiful, more vibrant? And maybe it just starts with a tiny, small, few wildflowers. And each year, you build on that. But that's the question that we need to ask. Can we do more good than harm? Can we make this place better?
0: Now, I'm also curious about some of the things that you personally have learned over your own years and experiences in observations and working with so many students
1: um I've learned that kids love to engage in activities and exploring so I don't have to know tons I just have to give kids the chance to explore so we'll take exploration dice and what that is is wooden blocks I've created six sides so I'll put all the six directions on one block and on the other I'll put a number like six twelve ten twenty four 24. And we'll roll the dice and I'll say, okay, northwest 24. So I'll we'll turn northwest and we'll take 24 paces and then we'll hunker down. And at our feet, we'll discover something. It might be a spider's web, it might be a hole in the ground, but this bounces us around the landscape to places we never would have gotten to. And it just shows that everywhere you step, there's something to discover. So yeah, um, what have I learned? I've learned that kids are born explorers and I just need to let them explore. I have also learned that the more I know about nature, the more I know nothing at all. I'm in kindergarten. I'm in, I'm in awe of my friend Drew, who I wrote the big book of nature activities with. He is a consummate naturalist. And those are so few and far behind. So if you go for a walk with Drew, it'll take you maybe an hour to go 100 meters. Because he just knows so much about everything. And what I love, it's, it's embodied knowing. He doesn't have to abdicate his knowing to a device and look something up. It's there in his head and it's there in his heart. There's something more powerful about that way of knowing that comes from years of experience that's deep inside of him. And that really is, it's beautiful.
0: And so, seeing as we're in kind of a reconnection stage, right, this is Mm -hmm. to imply that we are not very well connected right now. What vision for a more reconnected future do you think that we can reach?
1: So right now, um, I'm really inspired by the work of someone who created the concept of a living building. His name is Jason McClellan. And Jason McClellan is an architect, grew up in Ottawa, and eventually moved to the States. And he once looked at a tree and he said, hmm, just by virtue of being there, that tree does more good than harm. It uptakes carbon, it gives out oxygen, it aerates the soil, it provides food to animals and insects, it's beautiful. Why can't a building be like that? So he created this idea that buildings can actually do good on the landscape. So we've created a building called the Camp Kawartha Environment Center that embodies many of those principles. So like a tree, it produces more energy than it uses. It's made out of non-toxic materials that when it's useful life is over, like a tree, it will return to the soil. There's more nature in and around the spot the building occupies than before the building was built. It has, um, it's positioned to receive solar power. So it produces more energy than it uses. It's passive solar, meaning in the wintertime, sun streams in and helps to heat the building. There's so many principles there that we can learn from. So if we can build in a way which aligns with the principles of nature, of cycling, of producing more energy, of actually having more nature in and around our built spaces, that's the answer. That's what we need to be doing. And when kids see this, they really are motivated and empowered by that notion that people and nature can share the same spot so that both can thrive.
0: Look, Jacob, I can tell that you're inherently a very curious and inquisitive person. And I'm wondering what you're inspired by or working on or developing at the moment. What are you looking forward to? Yeah, so
1: we're working on the Pathways to Stewardship program where we have over 40 organizations involved, the university, the college, and we're trying to make sure that kids get those important stewardship experiences throughout their development. I think that's a model that's worth sharing um, to other jurisdictions. We're also doing eco-mentor programming. So we have um, a special program that trains teachers and developing teachers on how to take students outside in their schoolyard and what activities they can do there that are consistent with the curriculum that will help kids connect to nature. And just recently, um, this model has gone national online. So we're able to reach faculties of education across Canada. Um, And we're also working with early childhood educators. So, but really, I think we need to build and live in a new way, which brings nature back. That excites me, the whole idea of, of being regenerative, of doing more good than harm. And if I have a role to play in helping with that, I'd be very happy.
0: Man, uh, that concept, that idea really resonates with me as well. It's part of what this podcast is based around aiming to do. And I really think that we need to explore more how to intervene and inspire the younger generation so that they can take on the work that is going to be otherwise very insurmountable without their help. Yeah. What are some of the biggest roadblocks that you see? What are some of the biggest challenges that you're working to overcome in that regard?
1: Yeah I think it's just the sheer amount of time the kids are spending inside in front of computers and I'm not dissing computers they're a valuable tool but like any tool you need to learn to use it properly so the easiest way to counteract that is to help teachers and parents recognize the value of being outdoors connecting with nature and if we can train parents and educators to be the gatekeepers, to open up the doors to nature and to bring nature inside. I think that will go a long way to helping kids care for this earth that we all share.
0: Amazing. And I feel like I had cut you off there just before I asked this last question. Was there something else that you wanted to say?
1: Oh, I was just thinking about the idea of agency, empowerment, and hope. And and that is you don't want to give a kid a problem that they don't have the ability to solve for the age that they're at. In fact, everything you do hopefully inspires kids to want to do more. So think carefully before you know you start talking about climate change and how dire that all is. Instead, it starts with developing a close and intimate relationship with nature. And, and really, climate change is a symptom of our broken relationship to nature. We're doing what we're doing to the earth because we really have not had a good relationship with natural systems, and we're not thinking about how to care for the world that we're living in. We wouldn't be doing these things if we had a fulsome connection to nature.
0: Absolutely. And look, Jacob, I feel like there are still a lot of things that you are touching on here that we could explore for a long time, but how can others get in touch with you and learn more about the programs and... Uh, this pathway to stewardship and kinship program especially
1: yeah so they can just search pathways to stewardship and kinship and it'll take them to a website and there's just tons of resources there's videos that are going through each of what we call the landmarks um, so for every age and stage there's the key experiences I was talking about and it shows activities you can do for that age um, there's a wonderful guide and We're really inspired by First Nations ways of knowing and we've tried to weave that into the pathways to stewardship and kinship. I love when people email me and ask me questions or tell me what they're doing. So they can reach me, jacob at campcawartha.ca and maybe um, jacob at campcawartha, c-a-m-p-k-a-w-a-r-t-h-a.ca. And I love uh, being in touch with people.
0: A big thank you once again to Jacob Rottenberg. I'll be posting all of the contacts and links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons for free. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of an ongoing conversation happening around these topics at the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and focus on this show in the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. Now for those of you who stuck around until now to learn about the book giveaway promotion, all you have to do to be eligible to win a free copy of either the Big Book of Nature Activities or the Book of Nature Connection is to send me a private message on the Discord server letting me know that you'd like to be entered to win. It really is that easy. If you're in the US or Canada, you could win a hard copy of the book, but even if you're somewhere else in the world, we can get you a digital copy sent out to you as well. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.